Father, we're just so thankful for today, for the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, for the tie that binds us to the cross. Father, we just pray that you would open our hearts our minds now to receive a view. Lord, that you would touch Dave and uh, bring forth what you have from his heart to ours. We just pray for the church, for services today, in Christ Jesus. Amen. 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 Good. How are you? So, one of the questions that I ask you every week is, what did we talk about last week? <laughs> Anybody remember? Or are you all caught in seven-day memory? Second step. What did we talk about last week? The same thing you know, um, Oh yeah, we talked about that. But it was all in context of Bathsheba. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I read a proverb last week, which I'll also read again this week because it's it's important to understand, uh, especially in our present day. It says, there is a way, this is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So last week we looked at uh, chapters, anyone? 10, 11, 12. 10, 11, 12. So we looked at a long story. Uh, this, we sometimes call it the story of David and Bathsheba. And what went... What went wrong uh, with David? And I thought we would start this morning, in addition to uh, reiterating the the proverb from last week, with Psalm 32. Do you want to turn to Psalm 32? This is a psalm of David. We don't have any any, uh, contextual cues as far as... uh, as to when it was written, but I can kind of guess when it was written. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what my thoughts are a little bit later. So, you may want to read Psalm 32. Karen's ready. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped, as in the seat heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I would confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is God pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by dead and rattle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright and hurt. Amen. So this is David singing this. What do you suppose his state of mind was when he composed this? Any guesses? Definitely repentance. Humility. Humility. Definitely humility. You read both of those in here. 
What other what other things might have been going through his mind? Confession. Confession? Did I hear confession somewhere? What other what other things? He's grateful for the forgiveness that he's received. So he's he's grateful and he's also extolling that. He's presenting that to others. What else do you see in there? I think he's thankful that God has protected him and been with him through everything. He's very grateful. Yep. No matter what, God has been with him. That's right. God, God, uh, this is one of the aspects of love that uh, I really like. Um, it's God's choosing us. That when he chooses us, he doesn't unchoose us. He doesn't change his mind. And I thank Karen often. I say, thank you for choosing me today. <laughs> and, I, and I see that in here, that he's grateful that God's love doesn't change, that he is safe within God's hands, and that even though he sinned, God hasn't cast him out. Anything else you see in here? There's um, a feeling of um, guilt the one again. Yep. So you do. You see that guilt, and that he recognizes God's working on him. <coughs> He's not fully comfortable in his own skin. He's certainly not self-righteous in this psalm. You don't see any of that. So that's the humility part, the confession part, the repentant spirit. You see, and, and as you just said it, that captured it perfectly. Um, there's, there's one other thing that I see in here. Uh, and I, if you look down at verse 8, it says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include brit, bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. So, in addition to this contrite heart that he has, and you see that contrite heart, which he also talks about in Psalm 51, and we read Psalm 51 last week, um, and that Psalm 51 was particularly about these chapters that we read last week, uh, 10 through 12. And he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart of God you will not despise. So you see that he has this contrite heart, but he also wants to help others understand it. He wants to give that away. So that I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Yes? Well, the Lord, the Lord is the voice behind most of the psalms well, in the sense of that which is uh, true. But I mean, as opposed to in Psalm 51 where David says, you know, if you forgive me, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Right. This is more first person God speaking in this case. That was a question I kind of had too. I was sitting there looking at it. There, there's, there's, uh, there's a couple of uh, 
grammatical cues that could lead you to see a change in who's speaking, change of voice. The one is that verse 7 ends with uh, the musical uh, pause, selah. Um, I think you can read it either way. So we certainly understand that this is the way that uh, God has his hand upon us. But I think you also see it in the way that uh, David understands that God has his hand upon us and that we have a responsibility in that regard. So I think you can read it both ways, but I'm glad that you pointed that out because there is a change in, uh, a potential change in voice there. What would be the difference between the two? I mean, I'm saying that it's subtle, but... I mean, for me, yeah, it's subtle, but for me it means, you know, David's rejoicing in the first seven verses in this forgiveness he's gotten and and he's grateful for that and the blessing of it. And then it's like, there's almost a conversation going on. God has responded to him now. And, and you know, that's encouraging to me, too. That is encouraging, uh, yes. So I see that, you know, an interplay, or, you know, a discussion going on, if you will, mm. over conversation. Yep. Yeah, and there's a parallel scripture in Isaiah 30, verses 20 21, and it says, um, He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. So in his place of forgiveness, David has seen God as his teacher. God opened his eyes. And it says, your ears are here, a word behind you. This is the way walking. Which kind of parallels with, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So can you give me the reference in Isaiah again? I... Isaiah 30, okay. verses 20 and 21. Okay. And it says, your ears a word behind you. This is the way. Responsibility to behave as God behaves with our children, right? And what we're going to look at this morning is actually David's interaction with his children and some of the areas where he continues to fail in that regard because he's failing to pick up on this message. And that's why I mentioned we don't really have any cues as to when this was written. Um, we know that it was at a point in David's life where he had been significantly humbled. So he had gone through, uh, continuing to go through God's character university, but he definitely was not full of himself when he wrote this. And he definitely, uh, as we read it, understands the hand of God upon him, whether it be God's voice or his own voice and responsibility towards uh, the world, starting with his family. Uh, I think that exactly what you said is, is what we want to keep in mind, that we can make our plans, but it's God who directs our steps. He's the one that uh, is constantly, in his love for us, is looking over us and desires our good and wants to um, keep us on the straight and narrow. 
the straight and narrow being, I think of like Psalm uh, 121, where it talks about that he actually keeps our foot on the path so that our foot won't slip. Uh, you see that same kind of imagery repeated. And thank you for taking us to Isaiah, because that's clearly the voice of God there. Uh, and this is, this is what David, this is where he's at when he writes that. He's at a place of uh, contrition, a place of humility, a place of being able to be taught. But how did he get there is the question. How did he get to that place where he could hear and be taught? So last week we looked at when David had come into his kingdom and he had established uh, a unified nation and he had made the capital of that nation politically, Jerusalem. And then he had brought uh, centralization uh, of worship of God, for lack of a better way of describing it. In other words, he, <coughs> excuse me, he brought the place that God, um, or the, um, he brought the Ark of the Covenant to the to the political capital. So that became the central um, point for communing with God, as opposed to being uh, a tent in Shiloh or uh, a servant's house. Uh, down in, uh, whoop, we got something going on here that I'll take out of the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there was a, a point where there was a servant's house that the ark was at. Uh, rather than being in Jerusalem, it was down here. Uh, but what he did is he established the nation, unified it, put a capital, <coughs> then he brought and put God right in the middle of that. And this thing's going to knock not play well with me. My uh, buyer subscription died last night, so that's what we're seeing. Uh, and then, at that point, uh, we see that God made a covenant with David, and we see that uh, God, what was the promise that God made to, to David? Anybody put that in a couple words? Yep, he promised the eternal king would come through the line of David. There would always be somebody on the throne. And it wasn't an unending dynasty for David, but it was a promise of the eternal kingdom and the, the righteous king that would reign. And so that was our understanding of the beginning of the concept of Messiah. And Messiah in Greek is the word Christ, and that's where we get the the uh, description of Jesus as Jesus the Christ, not that Christ is a last name. A lot of times we say Jesus Christ like his first name was Jesus and his last name was Christ. That's not what it was at all. It's actually um, descriptive of who the man Jesus was, that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. So it's probably more accurate to say Jesus the Christ. Um, but we drop the a definite article in there and, and just say Jesus Christ. But what we understand is that David's, the promise made to David was that there would be one who would be the eternal king and that he would come from the line of David. And that we see prophecy supporting that from that point forward 
throughout history. We understand there was prophecy about Christ before David, but this made it really clear that there would be a human king that is is uh, fully divine, eternal, that would reign uh, over humanity and with humanity for eternity. And that is Jesus. That's what the Christians believe. The Jews today wouldn't necessarily say that that was Jesus. They might be looking for somebody else. Other people in the world are also looking for somebody else. But we understand that that's Jesus, the person that came in the first century A.D. If they're looking for somebody else, they're not saved then? Pardon? If they're looking for somebody else, they're not saved? Uh, what does it take uh, to become saved? What does it mean to be yes. saved? This is a good question. What does it mean to be saved? <clears throat> Trust in Jesus and what he did for us. What, what did he do for us? Right, so we're we're in a situation that we shouldn't be in by design. God's design was not that we would perish. He didn't design us to be uh, grass in the field, right? He designed us to be in eternal communion with Him, and not that we would be God or gods, but that we would. Uh, partake of his eternal attribute by being in communion or in him in a way that uh, we understand that that's a mystery. But nonetheless, there is no life outside of God, and what his design is, is that we would have life in him, that we would actually share in his eternal life. Well, how does that happen? I don't know that Adam and Eve understood that, and they were tempted... And as a result of the temptation that they and the deception that they underwent, they fell from a place where that was obtainable for them. It was no longer possible for them to be in eternal communion with God. That was a great loss. That was the greatest loss, right? Didn't catch God by surprise. Right? So he made a way that he could take our sin, that which separated us, upon himself so that the requirement of God could be met and at the same time we would not perish that we wouldn't die, that he would take our death upon himself, our sin so we understand the good news the gospel is that Jesus died for our sin and that he was buried so if you go to 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 3, it says, this is the gospel. If you ever want to know what the gospel is, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. It says, this is the gospel. That Jesus, the Christ, died for our sin according to the scripture. This is what God declared, revealed to us. That he was buried, which means he was really dead. And that he was raised on the third day. And that's a very significant thing, that he was raised from the dead. And that that was according to the scripture. It gives us the revelation and understanding why that was necessary and what the implication of that is. And that then he was seen by a whole lot of folk. And at some point we should probably do a whole discussion on that verse because that is central to our understanding as Christians. That is the message of salvation. That is good news. That is the gospel. What was that chapter again, Dave? Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Okay. 
And if you understand how Paul writes, what he writes is he writes in a rhetorical style. He's a lawyer. That's how what his training was. So when he wants to make something perfectly clear, he writes it in legal speak. And that's what that is. There is a proposition and then a defense. And that's exactly what he gives. He says, this is, this is the truth. This is the proposition that I'm making to you. That Christ died for our sins according to Scripture is proof that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day proposition. And the proof is that that was according to the Scriptures and he was seen. There were eyewitnesses, many of which were alive at that point. So if anybody wanted to interrogate the eyewitnesses, they could go do it. Nothing more concrete than that. In our culture today of law, which is what our culture is based upon, is law, right? We understand that um, as kingdoms go, and this is something when we get into a study of Daniel, and I realize I'm on a total rabbit trail, but I'm going to come back. As kingdoms go, there were four kingdoms that were set up in Daniel, or were revealed, not set up. Uh, there was a kingdom that was a kingdom of gold, and that that was Babylon. That kingdom was a kingdom of uh, an absolute monarchy in the sense that the king had power over life and death and no law constrained him. His word was life and his word was death and that's what you see played out in Daniel. That kingdom was subsequently replaced by another kingdom which was a kingdom of law. You read about that in Daniel chapter 6. That Daniel, even though he was a friend of the king, could not be delivered from the law by the king. So you see that it goes from an absolute monarchy to a, a law-based uh, society, and then that's replaced by a military-based society. And then finally you see uh, a mix of the three that comes in. You see uh, an emperor or king or president that is... Um, where there's a, a Senate or a Congress that uh, oversees law and a body that arbitrates law, maybe judges, <coughs> and that there's a military to support that, to make that happen. We saw that if you follow empires, you see that perfectly in Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome which is why a lot of times people will play those four kingdoms into the revelation of Daniel. But it's much more significant than that because it has to do how kingdoms function and what the kingdoms of man are as opposed to the kingdom of God, which is what Daniel's about. It's a war of the worlds. It's a contrast between two worlds. We see the same thing being said in Samuel, but in a little bit different way. We see a war of the worlds. And David was trained up as a king of a type of Messiah, of the true king, the one that would uh, reign over God's kingdom, both in heaven and on earth. And David is helping us understand what that kingdom looks like and what that king looks like. And that's what we've been going through as we go through Samuel. So now I probably gave you too much of the cheat sheet for the end of the book. But that's really what we're studying. Right? So when we see what David, as he came into power and what he set up, it's all about how God's kingdom looks and will look, being governed by the true king, the righteous king, the good king, 
the just king. But what you also see is the failure of human kingdoms. And that's what we started seeing last week. It's like David, still a man. He is not the God-man. He is not the Christ. And because he's a man, he makes the classic blunders, to quote the prince's bride, um, the classic blunders of human kingdoms. Right? So what was the classic blunder that David made when we looked at 10, 11, and 12? He's above the law or above God. You do what you want. That's right. It was a misuse of power. Um, as king, he was delegated authority to be God's presence to God's people. Now, as a human, that was, and not the true king, that was the most he could ever have as a delegated authority. And when God gives authority, he also gives power in order to execute that authority, in order to be effective in that which he's been commanded to do. Which is interesting when we look at us as Christians and the power that we have um, given a delegated authority to be God's representatives or ambassadors in this world. So we're representing God's kingdom, and it tells us that in the New Testament. And we have not only the authority of God that goes with that uh, appointment, to our position as ambassador, but we also have the power that goes behind it. And that's a whole other study in the New Testament. But nonetheless, David had the power, and he had the authority, and he misused the power. So when we look at the root of sin, one of the key things that we're going to see is a misuse of power, an abuse of power. Adam and Eve um, were given permission to choose. They were given choice, right? They were given a, a, a responsibility as many kings. They were put in dominion over God's creation. Reading <coughs> chapter 2 of Genesis, it gives a very clear assignment. Or chapter 1, it gives a very clear assignment. This is what you're supposed to do, right? And I'll take you there because this, is, this applies to all of us, right? Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26. says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we're created in the image of God. That means that we, in some respect, share attribute with him. Not that we are God. <clears throat> and that we are to rule. That we are to be in dominion as caretakers over God's creation. And it's interesting that the king, what's the king's job? Provide, protect, and to serve. That's how you take care of that which God has put under your rule. And he enables you to do that. When he gives you that charge... When he makes that appointment, when you're ordained to whatever position in life that God has put you in, he also gives you the power to affect that. And so we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be dissing God by thinking that we're not capable. 
Now, I know my wife's going to repeat this to me when I walk out the door. <laughs> I, I usually walk out the door and I say, okay, how bad did it suck? <laughs> Seriously, because um, I realize that I have a, a very important responsibility when I stand up before you to speak to accurately present the revelation of God and that he has given me training to do that and given me a burden to do that and that um, I need to be faithful in what God has called me to do. And I often doubt my ability. So this is one of my failures, right? One of the areas where Satan will use this against me. Um, or it's not necessarily a failure, but a weakness on my part is that I sometimes doubt the power that God has behind those he's chosen. Yes, I think that's an advantage over being overconfident. Well, and part of it, I think, stems from um, I had a very humbling experience as a young man. And, uh, and God wanted me to understand um, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 and some of these psalms. Wanted me to understand what he said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. He wanted me to understand these things, so yeah. Uh, I've been in God's University too, but everybody that's sitting here has been in God's University. We get too confident, we get less careful. Yeah, but we need to have confidence, but the confidence needs not be our confidence, but confidence in God. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize here, is that, and this is what I think David is learning, that his strength is not his own strength. His security is not his own security. It's not what he brings, but what God brings. And that we need to understand that God does that not because we're special, but because he loves each one of us individually, and he loves all of us. That means that there is no unimportant part, no matter what you do in life. Everything that you do is important and vital to God's kingdom. So David's learning this, and he makes the classic blunder in sin. He abuses power. Yes, sir. Um, so, I think it's a critical thing that whenever we're in ministry, as you described, what we need to do for this class and other things, that we're dependent upon Him. That we're trusting in Him. That we're relying on Him. So, uh, I mean, I think that's really important. We're kind of on a rabbit trail, but I think... <coughs> no, this is an important <coughs> rabbit trail. So, could you... <coughs> didn't just look at, you know, how do you survive on the street? I learned that right away. 
Um, all sorts of things happened. I mean, I got shot at with a shotgun. I had to jump out of moving cars. I had times when I'd sleep and I'd be freezing cold at night because I had nothing. And, you know, I mean, all those kind of things. If people on the street, you see these people that are out there, and they're not there necessarily because of uh, uh, they're doing that as their business, because there are some that do that as their business. Um, but, you know, they end up there. Well, I ended up there, and all that stuff really happens. Um, but in just trying to survive, in addition to that, I was also trying to figure out what, what is going on life. What is the truth about life and death? And a guy took a sh three shots at me with a shotgun and to have three shots fired at you when somebody's trying to kill you and survive is a miraculous thing when that happens. Uh, because shotguns are very effective, uh, at least at short range, for <clears throat> incapacitating you and killing you. And uh, that woke me up. And in that experience I remember I actually called out to the Lord and I didn't know the Lord. I said, God help me. I'm not ready to die. And, uh, and in the course of escaping, um, and I came out in this farmer's field, and there was a pit bull. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I escaped the shotgun to be eaten by the dog. And, uh, but it's, interestingly, the dog had more mercy on me than I was willing to grant God. And I managed to survive. And I said, okay, God, what do I do now? And so I started reading, and I started remembering the Bible that had been shared with me by people instrument, you know, influential people throughout the course of my life. And I still have a Bible I was given when I was nine years old. Actually, I was eight, and it was before my ninth birthday. And I had written the date in it, November 6, 1966, because that was an important date to me when someone at a Sunday school class, my mom used to ship me out to Sunday school because I was a wild kid, and she needed a break from me. So she <laughs> ship me out to Sunday school. This teacher... Sunday school teacher, and I can't remember his first name now off the top of my head, but his last name's McLeod, um, gave me this New Testament Bible. I still have that. He's one of those people that faithfully shared God's word with me as I was growing up. When I came out of that field after being shot at, I asked God, okay, what do I do? And all these thoughts of all those people came into my mind, the things that they had said to me. And I started a really serious quest to understand what life and death was all about what the world was really, what was really going on. Because it says in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, we're to take the full armor of God that we can stand in the evil day. And having done all, after you've done everything, you stand fast. And that that just rocked me. You know, there's more to life than flesh and blood, and I needed to understand it. And so I went on this search to understand what God was all about. And I, I studied all sorts of different religions. I looked at them and I studied philosophy. It's like, even though I was a high school dropout at 16, I was an avid reader and I read voraciously and I just read all this stuff. And I was reading this book called Seth Speaks about the spirit world and, and uh, those that are spirits that intervene in different people's lives throughout history. And I was actually believing that it was true. When I ran into a Christian missionary at, uh, and this is my testimony that I've given, a uh, guy from Hawaii, and I was in the middle of the wilderness in Colorado, and they did a campfire program, and I showed up and I listened to the music because I was drawn to music, 
And I stuck around afterwards because I was just in this place of I got to know the answer to this. And uh, and the guy, he said, so what's up with you? So I told him. I told him all this stuff that I'm telling you guys. Right? And I said, I don't know what the truth is. And I'll never forget, the guy laughed at me. And he wasn't laughing at me. He was laughing. He said, man, devil's been having way with you. And then he shared with me the gospel, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And I was there and ready to learn. And I heard, and I was saved. That's what happened. And as a result of that, that experience, I then said, what do you do now? Well, I came out of the wilderness, and I uh, had been given a Bible by a friend, and I just started reading it. Where do you start reading the Bible? Genesis chapter 1 or it's like well maybe I should read the New Testament because it's newer so I started Matthew chapter 1 and I had no discipleship, no understanding of where to go and I ended up in a Christian cult and I didn't know what a Christian cult was because I didn't hardly understand what Christianity was and this Christian cult didn't believe that Jesus was uh, divine they believed that he was a wise man but that he wasn't God himself. And uh, it's like, I didn't know. It's like, oh, Jesus is just a wise guy, and I should listen to the wise guy? Um, That isn't what I've been told somehow, but I didn't quite understand this whole concept of Trinity. So I went with my brother into a bookstore, and I realize this is a long story, but it's important. I I went into a bookstore, I was witnessing to my brother, because I didn't know any better. It's like, hey, you need to get this Jesus thing. This is really cool. And uh, and so we went into a Bible bookstore, and it was on a fun bookstore, and the guy asked me, so where do you go to church? Real common question, and this is a great way, it's evangelistic uh, type message, right? He said, where do you go to church? I said, well, actually, I'm a leaf on a twig, on a branch, you know, connected to the root, and I was part of this way ministry thing, and he says, you know, that's a Christian cult. They don't believe that Jesus is God. I said, what are you talking about? They don't believe in the Trinity. What's the Trinity? The guy says, here, he gives me a book. Paid for it out of his own pocket. It's called the Mind Benders. And it helped me to understand what Christianity is and what Christianity is. And this is really important because we're in a day to day, a day to day, where people don't know what Christianity is. People will say, I'm a Christian, and so there's some power to that word. It's like, no, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he died for my sins and was raised on the third day. That's what I believe. You can call me whatever you want, but that's what I believe. And there are people today that will call themselves a Christian and think that that's what they're saying. And that's not what they're saying. I mean, uh, Mormonism does not say that. Jehovah's Witnesses does not say that. And that's a really important thing to understand. We live in a pluralistic culture. And then the gospel message is not central to being Christian today, what is called Christian. And so anyway, so I went on this whole deal, and I'll, I'll get to it. I went on this whole deal about trying to understand the Trinity. And if you want to understand something really weird and tough, take on the Trinity. I challenge anybody in here, do a study on the Trinity. It'll change your life. And because it, I know it changed mine, and it took me 30 years. To the point where I would come to you and say, I don't have a clue, but this I know, right? That Jesus is truly human and truly divine. He is the Son of God. He is the one that's talked about in Jan- 
Daniel 7.13. I understand where he is in Scripture as a result of, of trying to understand the Godhead. And there is no single thing that has been more important in my formative experience to prepare me to be a teacher than what happened at that campfire and in that bookstore. Those are two critical pieces of formation in God's university for me. And everybody in here has a story like that. Everybody in here has a story like that if you know Jesus as your Savior. And even if you don't, you've got a story. So uh, we would like to share with you who Jesus the Christ is if you don't know Jesus. Uh, because it's absolutely essential. Um, there is no more important thing in life. Uh, so that's a very long answer to the short question. How did I, uh, how come I take this so seriously? Because this is life and death. And what's going on in David's life is about his life and what we come to understand that God's saying through him about sin and the war of the worlds. That's what it's about. And about how we draw near to God. How we can be a person after God's heart. That's what the, the, the framework of Samuel is, right? You look at key verses, where does it pop out? That's where it pops out. That's what it means. That's what we're studying. So when we looked at chapter 10, 11, and 12, and I realize I took all of our time. Yes, sir. I just want to reiterate you know, kind of what Tim was talking about. Is, you know, what you just described for your testimony, how you know, immaterial... You know, the guy in, in, in the wilderness and, and the guy at the store. You know, we have all been in those positions. You know, I've had those people in my life. Yes. But to you, to me, they are so critical yes. in my path to becoming a Christian that, you know, don't lose an opportunity right. to, to stand fast for God in front of a non-believer. And it, it is absolutely critical. And what I would say is this. Everybody in here has been called to the job of the place in life that you are in right now, in this instant in time. And that that calling is to represent God faithfully in word and deed. And that we need to pay attention to the things that would cause us not to... Uh, faithfully present who God is because it's the message of life. There is no greater greater calling. There is no greater task. Um, the, every breath we take is about expressing to those who don't know God who he is, that they might be saved. And I believe that the reason that we're still here, if God, if God was done, we would be too in this world. Our job would end. And we would enter into, into that rest with him. Um, but we're not done yet. So that means that every minute we have an opportunity. So I just got up here and I told you some things about myself. Now I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to ask my wife, how bad did I suck? I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Uh, and this is why we need to understand what is the gospel. Because Christianity is about the gospel. And it doesn't matter whether you're Catholic, because I know Christian Catholics, right? Um, I know people that are in cults today that don't realize that they're in a cult. It's a matter of helping them be educated to, 
to understand the foundations of, of doctrine and Christian uh, faith to help them out of the cult, but they were saved. Right? So we need to understand that. Just because somebody is uh, grown up in a Mormon family and, be, and is in a Mormon uh, church does not mean that God isn't going to save them or has saved them, and he's educating them right now on why that, that religion isn't Christian, isn't, um, isn't presenting the gospel message. It's called the Mind Benders by a guy named Sparks. Yeah, the Mind Benders. Benders. And there, there are a lot of books like that. I mean, you can read Kingdom of the Cults. Um, you can read, I mean, there are several books out there that talk about what the foundational message of Christianity is. And I would encourage you to do that. Um, I totally agree. Well, on this thing that you know, we're Christianity versus <clears throat> true faith, um, myself personally, the word Christian has become so watered down and covers so many non-biblical and less than biblical teachings that I'm a little more inclined to use the term <laughs> biblical faith to get back to the source because uh, Catholicism as it is taught is quite unbiblical Correct. Uh, and any number of others are too but they're still called Christian and when the non-Christian Oh, I'm a Christian. What's that mean to him? It doesn't tell him anything. That's right. So that's why I typically uh, will not advertise that I'm a Christian. If you go out to my car, you won't see a bumper sticker. You won't see a fish. Um, when I go into work, uh, you don't see me wearing a little slapper wristband thing or any of those kinds of things because I want people to understand who Christ is, if, if not what the world says about a religion. Yeah. If I'm asked, I tend to use the term that I... I I tend to lean on biblical faith. Yeah. And what, what I found is the most effective thing is when people watch your walk and hear and listen to your talk, and then when they get squeezed into the tight place, which always happens, you know, uh, they, they say life happens, well, guess what? Everybody is going to have trials. That's what the Bible tells us. Uh, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean you go from trials to non-trials. In fact, in many ways, your trials increase. And the reason why is because God puts you in a place where trials are so that you can testify to his power and his grace and his love in that place. And I always wait for the question, so what's up with you? How can you stand here in the midst of everything that's going on and be totally at peace? What's up with you? And then I, I have the answer. I'd love to tell them. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you, and give that reason with gentleness and respect. So that means I'm not sitting there thunking somebody on the head, telling them why they're wrong. What it means is I'm waiting for them to see the hope ask the reason. And I want people to know what the gospel message is so that in that instant you know exactly what to say. That's my job as an equipper. My job as a teacher is to help you answer your questions so that in that moment when you're there, not me, 
You know what to say. Because it doesn't help to say, oh, well, let me take you to my pastor. Or let me take you to my teacher. Or let me take you to my neighbor. The guy has a Bible study. Right? You need to be able to answer. And that's why I think things like Samuel and Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah, the, the revelation in the Old Testament is foundational to be able to answer these questions with assurance. You need to know the full revelation of God. I know I'm way, way off. <laughs> you're doing great. You're doing but, great. Just, you know, you've got to ask, why, why do we come here every Sunday? Right? Right. This is my one day of the week to sleep in and watch football. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't sleep in. I don't watch football. I love football. Can, can anything be made for David that he actually loved God? He, he very, very dearly. But he was somewhat ignorant of the scriptures when you look back to the movie Ark of the Covenant. Yes. And he, he should have known that. He should have known that the king should not have had multiple wives. Right. It seems like he was he was really pursuing God the right way, but he maybe in his own way a little bit too. And, and that's what I wanted to present about how that not knowing how to come before God and how to draw near to God and be in God's presence that David so dearly wanted, how our ignorance of that causes us, sets us up to fail in many ways. And so we saw that in chapters 10, 11, and 12, where David, stepping one step outside of the plan that God had for him went right down a path really fast that led to adultery and murder. Here's a guy who loved God. How did he end up there? Well, it didn't start there. It wasn't that one step that got him. There was a whole bunch of events that led before that. And when we look at our next section here, and we're in a part of Samuel right now where we have large chunks of narrative. Our next large chunk of narrative is two chapters, verses 13 and 14. And then the next large chunk of narrative is chapter 15 through 20. So we're going to cover large swaths of narrative, but they have a central message. The message in chapters 13 and 14, since I'm going to run out of time this morning, I'm just going to give it to you, and then we'll come back and we'll unfold it next week. That David's failure with his family started with a plan, and it was a good plan. It was a... A plan, and there were evil plans in there too. There were good plans and there were evil plans. But it started with a cognitive piece where um, both a cognitive piece to sin and a cognitive piece to, to bring uh, wholeness or integrity to the family. And then it went from a plan to compromise. A compromise was made. Both a moral compromise um, and a compromise in integrity. I guess that would both they'd both be a moral compromise. Play it all the way out. And then there was a uh, a disregard of the truth as it was revealed. So this is how sin works. It starts up here, it ends up um, with a compromise, disregard of the truth, and then you act on that. And that's exactly what happened. And if you and I call this the uh, it's a recipe for a catastrophe or a disaster. And there are classic examples of this that you can see in everyday life. There's there's a way that God does things and reveals things that are repeated over and over and over again. And I can uh, usually I start this section by ask people 
What does January 28, 1986 mean to you? Anybody know what happened on January 28, 1986? That's right. That's when the Challenger blew up. 73 seconds into flight at 46,000 feet, going more than Mach 2, the thing disintegrated in less than two seconds. And that the failure occurred in microseconds. But what is not told in that 73 seconds is what happened in the two years before and how plans were made and compromises occurred and disregard of truth occurred that led to a plan of action that was self-serving. And a result of that took microseconds and ended up in a disaster. That's the way sin happens. That's what we're going to see in chapters 13 and 14. That's what we're going to see in chapters 15 through 20. That there is a pattern that we can look at and personally learn from about how sin gets into our life and destroys us. And we need to pay attention to it. Because if the primary mission that we have is to represent God and to present Him faithfully in word and deed, then we need to pay attention to what's going on now in our lives. Yeah, I've said too much, sorry. So, I guess I've got a few minutes left here. And we never even got through the introductions. So, I'll, I'll just ask a couple of questions. Um, what was David's sin? Confession. Failure to seek God. Pardon? Failure to seek God. Failure to seek God. Adultery. Self-gratification. Idolatry. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. Uh, expand on that, please. Um, well, I mean, he made that he made that sheep an idol. I mean, I guess more than that, he made himself an idol because he failure he failed to think that it was uh, he didn't go out in the battle and thought that he didn't need to do that. So in some sense, I mean, he didn't see God. Instead, he. In some senses, he did his own thing. He had his own counsel. In, in that way, he made himself idol. He made himself God. Saying that he, he could make the choices. He didn't need to ask God. He didn't need to go out to battle. It was all about him. He made, so, he made himself a God. He made himself a God. He committed uh, transgression of the first uh, two commandments, clearly. And I would argue... All of them, ultimately. You'd say that the original sin of all sins was when Lucifer said, I want to be God. I want to be like God. Yes. And, you know, I mean, that's putting himself in the place of God. But it was pride. And David is looking out at 
Lord, um, just continue to challenge us in this way as we look at Samuel and we look at Jeremiah this morning in the, the message from Pastor Bob. Help us to truly see your, what you're speaking to us. Let your Holy Spirit have way in our heart. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask for your protection as we go from here. Uh, we ask for your provision. It's a very challenging world, and there are many fears that we would have in that regard. And Lord, help us rest secure in you, knowing that you do protect and you do provide. And we thank you so much for your service towards us, Lord. Help us to be good servants. Thank you for that. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.